Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Playlist Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Barfield, Managing Editor of The Playlist. For this episode, I have yet another interview for you guys. This time, I got the chance to speak with filmmaker Joe Cornish, who has a new series on Netflix titled Lockwood & Co. You probably know Joe Cornish best from his film work, including his breakout feature, Attack the Block, and most recently, The Kid Who Would Be King. He's also a frequent collaborator with Edgar Wright, and the two guys, along with a few other folks, recently launched their production company, Complete Fiction. And the first product coming from that company is the new Netflix series, Lockwood & Co., Lockwood & Co. is a supernatural mystery series about a trio of young people in an alternate version of London where ghosts run rampant. In this world, there's a strict curfew, so people aren't attacked by spirits and entities. And yes, there are plenty of homes that also have unwanted otherworldly visitors. That's where Lockwood and his two friends come in as they are hired to vanquish these unwanted ghosts from homes and businesses. As Joe Cornish describes it, the series covers a variety of genres, including horror, detective shows, and relationship dramas. In our discussion, we talk quite a bit about Lockwood, including the process of adapting the novel series into a regular TV series, picking the pop songs for the episodes, and what it's like releasing a show on Netflix in a post-Wednesday world. We also talk a bit about Attack the Block and the forthcoming sequel, as well as his history with Marvel Studios as one of the original writers for the Ant-Man film well before Iron Man was even released. But before I throw it to the interview, I got to tell you the Playlist Podcast is part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which includes The Fourth Wall, Deep Focus, The Discourse, Bingeworthy, and more. And if you want to find us, you can check your podcast app of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher, anywhere else you find your favorite shows. Okay, without any further ado, here's my interview with Joe Cornish, creator and showrunner of the new Netflix series Lockwood & Co., which is available now. Enjoy. All right, so let's let's talk about Lockwood & Co. How about that? Mm. So... This is a uh, a series that I noticed right off the bat. It's visually striking. Uh, you've got like alternate history. You've got colorful, almost superhero-y costumes. You've got obviously the ghosts and the CG that goes into that. When you read the source material, because this is based on a series of novels, uh, did it just jump off the page and, and scream like this must be a TV show that's visually striking? Well, you know, we came across the book 10 years ago when there was only one uh, book, The Screaming Staircase. No. Yeah. The Screaming Staircase is the first book, I'm pretty sure. Uh, And it was on the market for a movie adaptation. And, you know, even in the first book, the world building is so brilliant and the sort of concept is so great. When me and Naira and Edgar and Rachel, who now form Complete Fiction, when we were back at Big Talk, Naira's previous company, we tried to option it, but 
it got snatched up by a big studio and then I think languished in development for 10 years. We went off and made other other movies and we formed our own production company. And fast forward to 10 years later, there are five books and they come, they become available again. So we thought what what better material to uh, base our company's first foray into episodic television upon. Is that a good <laughs> sentence? I think so. <laughs> um, so you mentioned the world building. And, and when I when I get into a show that uh, or a movie that has this level of world building, I always am fascinated by it because it can go really well or it can go really badly. Um, and I think you guys do it well um, because mm. you slowly unveil and you peel back pieces of the world. You know, each episode seems to have kind of a, a new entry point into this world. Um, what was that like when, like you said, there's this world building? Do you approach it and think of uh, fun and inventive ways to to unveil that without bogging it all down? Well, listen, my my best metaphor for this is is comes from the world of video games, right? So you know when a video game puts you through a laborious tutorial to teach you how to use all the button patterns, I do not like that. I much prefer <laughs> how they do it in, say, Zelda where you just wake up in a cave, you walk out into the landscape and you start learning by doing, you know, you pick up a twig, uh, you pick up a piece of string, you fashion them into a bow. So my favorite world building is like a piece by piece breadcrumb trail where you are watching somebody behave, you're watching procedure and you're learning about the world by the way characters interact with it. So that's what we try to do. The first episode just puts you into this situation where this young man and this young woman armed with these peculiar weapons are walking into what you realize is a haunted house and you start to become aware that they are tasked with getting rid of the ghost. And that's kind of all you need to know. You then watch how they do it. You watch how they respond. You see the investigation unfold. Um, yeah, so my favorite thing is just to let it, to let the action carry the world building rather than give audiences a big, you know, uh, history lesson at the beginning of the first episode. And you, it's, it's another thing that interested me about that is uh, a lot of times they will, in, in shows that don't do it as successfully, they'll just have exposition machines, either a character or, you know, even like a title screen or something will come up and try to explain the world. And you, and you really don't do that. Um, but you do have Cameron Chapman, your, your lead here, uh, one of the leads, I guess. And uh, I was surprised to know that this is kind of one of his first major gigs, and not only that, he is kind of responsible for for building the world for you in a lot of ways, um, kind of setting the rules and then also having to become this like charismatic young guy. Um, so when you hired him first, you know, good job finding him because he's great. But uh, were you at all concerned that you're giving this young actor just a lot to carry? Um, were we concerned? Not really. Uh, I think, you know, Cameron's job was always to sell the scenes moment to moment and I guess we were confident that on the page the way the exposition was doled out was kind of um, piecemeal enough not to ever burden him with too much having said that he does an extraordinary job you know Lockwood is a really layered character on on the surface he's kind of charismatic and he has the gift of the gab 
and he's the sort of mascot for his own company. Uh, he also is a little bit reckless, a little bit overambitious, sometimes a little exploitative of the people who work for him. And then he's also very ha haunted. He lost his parents. He has these dark secrets. He's, as they say in the show, burdened by the business of death. So we had to find an actor who could pull off those layers. And we were very lucky to find Cameron. He was still at drama school when the casting agent discovered him. We actually overlooked his first tape. We didn't call him the first time we saw him. Uh, but when we were really up against it and we couldn't find anybody, we went back through all the casting tapes and realized that we'd kind of overlooked him, missed him the first time round. And we brought him in and he was just brilliant. So hopefully if that, you know, exposition and world building comes off, it's a combination of the care we took with writing and his his incredible talent. One of the, the another thing I'm, I'm not familiar with the books. So in my research, I saw that you you did make some changes. Uh, and one of the changes was actually with a, one of the, the three leads, um, George, you you change, I guess, his background. Um, when when you're tackling a series of novels and making it into a TV show that hopefully runs for years, um, how how reverential are you to that source material? And do you, you know, call up the author and say, hey, are you cool with us making these changes? Absolutely. Um, Jonathan Stroud, who wrote the novels, was very closely involved with the show. He let us do what we wanted, but at the same time, he was there for us whenever we needed him. And we consulted with him on all kinds of aspects, including the casting of George. So George in the books is kind of blonde and, you know, a little bit heavy and... Um, uh, a little bit. He always reminds me slightly of Watson in 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 Young Sherlock Holmes and the Pyramid of Fear, right? The boy that played Watson. <laughs> um, you know, we are completely kind of open when we cast. We're looking for an actor who encapsulates the character. So 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 the behavior, the personality, the mannerisms of the character, I think, are more important than the than the overall superficial look, you know. Um, for instance, it would be no good to have an actor that looked right, but did not behave right. It's better to have the actor that behaves exactly right and totally captures the character. You know, Ali happens to be British Iranian. We thought there was some stuff we could use in from that to actually make the character a little bit different and even more interesting. Um, but trust me, he is the best person in the world to be playing George. Yeah. Uh, another aspect of the show that I, I really enjoyed, and I guess I shouldn't have been surprised by it, is your musical selections. Um, you you seem to have the right needle drop at the right moment in the episodes. Uh, you have people like Susie and the Banshees, Bauhaus, The Cure, these bands that I'm just like, of course, why wouldn't you? Um, so how, how early do you know that these are bands I want to feature and, and where exactly to put them? Well, you know, Lockwood & Co. is set in a parallel version of the modern world where the digital revolution never happened. Instead, the world has gone back to a sort of post-industrial mode where metal and all these industrial industrial elements are vital to combating ghosts. As a result, it felt to me the cultural atmosphere would not be dissimilar to how it was when I was a teenager 
in the mid 80s when in the UK Margaret Thatcher was uh, the prime minister there was this atmosphere of kind of entrepreneurialism similar to what was happening in the states with you know Wall Street and uh, all that kind of stuff there was also a big recession uh, there was the threat of terrorism from Northern Ireland so there were all these elements that really are can, can, can be a parallel to what happens in Lockwood and the music of that time was kind of romantic and depressing but kind of beautiful like doom laden but incredibly emotional and human and personal it was very analog you could really hear the sound of fingers on guitar strings and the breaths between the words in lyrics so I felt that kind of uh, feel and that period of music was was perfect for Lockwood. Um, so I listened to a bunch of it, especially the Bauhaus track, Bella Lugosi's Dead. I listened to that a lot while I was writing. And I always build up a kind of playlist while I develop. So by the time the the product by the time we got into editing, I already had kind of, you know, five, ten tracks that 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 I knew would um capture the atmosphere of the show. What's interesting about the the 80s aspect of it is I also notice, you know, with the technology or the lack thereof in your show, it, it does kind of help, right? Like, did you ever think you're maybe cheating a little because you don't have access to the internet and the show? People have to go to physical libraries, things like that, where you're like, oh, this is just much better than just a smartphone in their hand. It's tough, isn't it? I, I, I don't know. I just never find it that interesting to be looking at a screen on a screen. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the old school way of doing it, I think, is much more dramatic. I mean, there are many great films that do do that, you know. Um, but this is the world that Jonathan described and invented in his books. And Lockwood and Co is, you know, half, you know, a third a supernatural show, a third a relationship drama, and a third a detective show. So I think the detective element of it is really enhanced by the fact that. They really have to work. They can't just put a search term into Google. They got to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you, you've you mentioned already a couple of times that you have this new production company, Complete Fiction, and you started it with uh, a number of people. And you signed this deal with with Netflix and Lockwood, I guess, is the, the fruits of the labor, the early fruits of the labor, I guess. Mm. Um, is there anything else that you have uh, coming up that you're like amped about with, the, with that deal? Yes. But to be honest, I am so immersed in Lockwood & Co. I'm not massively in touch with what my compadres are doing <laughs> with Fair the enough. other projects. So, so I'm best to stay tight-lipped about that. Fair but, enough. But, 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 but I know they have. I know we have a bunch of very exciting things in development. Uh, I, I, I'm just. Compl I'm wearing my. I, I just have my Lockwood & Co. hat on, <laughs> my Lockwood & Co. face mask on, my Lockwood & Co. coat on. My bucket, my head is in the bucket of Lockwood and Co. Unfortunately, so I'm not the guy to ask. I'm afraid. That's fair enough. Uh, and and speaking of of Netflix and Lockwood, uh, Netflix, uh, you know, because they're a streamer and because they kind of keep stats close to the vest, they've people tend to think that the the results for the shows and how well they do is kind of this vague thing. Um, when you're on the other side of that, when you're a creator working under these circumstances, do you just, you can't even think about that sort of thing? Like what'll happen? Or are you, you know, kind of in tune with, with, you know, the numbers? Uh, you know, I 
Before this show, I did not watch a lot of episodic television. I'm a movies guy. I watch a movie a night or half a movie a night, depending on what time my daughter goes to bed. <laughs> I love movies. Uh, so when I started working on this, I started to watch more, watch Netflix shows, see how the first episodes worked, see how what the pacing was like, you know, figure out what I liked and disliked about the way these shows tend to go. Um, so I thought about it in that respect. And some shows I thought were a little bit desperate in their first episodes. They felt a little bit anxious to please. <laughs> and the ones I preferred just were confident and were confident enough to just do their thing and uh, not be nervous about being interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but aside from that, in terms of the release, it's a new thing for me. Like the idea that all eight episodes of Lockwood and Co. will just appear uh, on a billion servers all over the world at the same time is crazy. I really don't know what that is going to be like. Is that better or worse than an opening weekend for a movie? I don't know. <laughs> is it is it better or worse than having a an episode released per week? Yeah, I yeah. Do, do you see things like like Wednesday happen, and you're like, oh wow, if this hits, it could be just huge. Yeah, well, man, you know, you know as well as I do, the numbers when something is successful on Netflix, the numbers are just phenomenal. You know, if you translated those numbers into box office tickets, they would, you know, it it, it would be an incomparable success. Um, so it's very exciting to have that opportunity, you know. And I have to say, Netflix here in the UK have been phenomenal with the marketing. Uh, they've been really clever and inventive and there's a there's a billboard in there's a massive billboard in Times Square in New York I did I I never thought that would ever happen with anything I worked on you know there's huge billboards here in central London there's huge billboards all over the country you know I don't think we could ask for you know a greater level of support from Netflix for the show that's awesome. So I want to switch gears a little bit because I think if I didn't mention Attack the Block while I had you here, it'd be a, a great disservice. Um, it's crazy to think that that's been over a decade since you've released that movie. Um, and it <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh and recently it was announced that, that you're working on a sequel with John Boyega. Yes. And I'm curious, uh, you know, whenever you see that there's been so much time between movies in a, in a franchise, I always wonder, you know, what about now? lends itself to to revisiting is it a matter of just timing because you know he was busy with this whole other franchise or is it just that now in 2023 there's something you have to say um i think what's interesting is the fact that it's 10 years on i think 15 year old moses and 30 year old moses are very very different characters and Comparing the boy to the man, I think, is immediately interesting and suggests all these thematic ideas that can be expanded upon. Um, so it's really about the age of the character, actually. And I don't really want to say any more, because if I told you the concept, you would get it. <laughs> You'd go, oh, OK. <laughs> but but but. Yeah, what is central to the concept is 
Moses has grown up. That is what's central to it. But trust me, it's still action, adventure, chases, explosions, aliens, but in a new way. That's awesome. I, I can't wait for that. But uh, and, and finally, before I let you go, um, I, I would love to ask you just something quick about Ant-Man. Um, mm. Years ago, you worked with Edgar Wright on the original version of that before the MCU was the MCU. Um, right. Now we're, we're literally like days away from the third movie in the Ant-Man franchise. It's bigger than ever. It's going to you know maybe do a billion dollars. When you were writing that movie years and years ago with Edgar Wright, did you ever think that well, A, obviously you guys thought you'd be more involved, but did you ever think that it would be such a huge franchise and that the MCU would be what it is? Uh, I don't think so, but then I don't think Kevin did either. You know, when 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 Edgar and I first met Kevin and Marvel, they were in offices above the BMW showroom in Beverly Hills. It was around the time, you know, of Ang Lee's Hulk and... Uh, you know, Favreau hadn't even started working on the first Iron Man. Superhero movies were not a thing. They were kind of not perceived as a cool thing to do. They were kind of they were kind of a cruddy genre, I guess, because VFX hadn't evolved to a place where they could actually put what was on the page on the screen. So they always felt that they were reaching for something that they couldn't achieve. Um but that was way back, you know, that was right after Shaun of the Dead, uh, when Artisan, a company called Artisan, owned the rights to those characters. Um, so, you know, we we worked on that movie for something like eight years on and off. And in that time, the landscape changed completely. The technology changed completely. Audiences fell in love with superhero movies, you know, all the stuff that people loved in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s in comic books was suddenly translated onto the screen in a really direct way that had never happened before. Um, yeah, and and that kind of overtook us in the sense that the, the Marvel didn't necessarily want the authored movie that Edgar and I wanted to make because by that point they had this, this behemoth on their hands. They had this, uh, like, you know... Um, universe where the movies had to like integrate and Edgar is an auteur you know he Edgar Wright makes Edgar Wright movies so in the end you know that's why it didn't happen I guess having said that a lot of our stuff is still in there and I really like that movie and we're, we're as excited as anybody to see where it goes next I just I we feel I, connected I, to that cast as well you know because Edgar yeah. kind of cast it yeah. some of the designs in there so there's still there's still there's still a little bit of Edgar Wright a couple yeah. of little Edgar Wright ants scuffling <laughs> around <laughs> invisibly in those movies I just I just it blows my mind as a as a fan of you and and Edgar's and also a fan of the comics that we're going to see an Ant-Man versus Kang the Conqueror movie in our lifetimes which is just bananas yeah. to me um so yeah yeah, I mean, the first one was a much smaller scale, wasn't it? It was a domestic drama in many ways. You know, all the climax happening in in, in um, the girl's bedroom. And, you know, the idea with the first one was taking a small arena and making it giant, you know. So 
so it's gone somewhere giant giant now the whole thing is giant now yeah yeah all right well thank you so much for speaking with me about lockwood and co the show's great um it's very different than ant-man but also uh it's it's just a lot of fun um and thanks, and man. your three leads are great so so thank yeah thanks for much. for talking much, much appreciated thank you charles great to meet you man great to yeah. see you Thank you.